Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Chan Baker. Hello. While Laura is deep into producing our 10th season, which will be not a deep dive, just a normal dive. Maybe just I deleted kind of, the tape. <laughs> I noticed. You're diving, though. You're still diving. You're diving to the business of illustration. We're going to go back to our beloved Open Tabs format for a ninth season, loosely based on our popular event series with the same name. For the rest of the season, Laura and myself will be coming together each week and going through some of our own open browser tabs, providing an insight into the creative industry from our unique points of view, as well as the Google search results that define us. Using the internet as our lens, we hope to explore a variety of current events, opinions, and tools to provide thought-provoking conversation for anyone whose job it is to bring creative things to life. But mostly, it's a chance for us to talk a lot of jazz and Laura to share some cooking tips. We'll see. Laura, <laughs> welcome back. How are you going? Oh, now I'm sad that I didn't bring any cooking tips this week. Next week, I'll make up for it by having only cooking links. You did promise a salad. <laughs> How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm okay. You know, coming out of a four-day weekend and just riding the waves of all the interesting things that are kind of happening at the moment and seeing where we all fit in. So yeah, can't think of a better way to kind of dive in this week with my first link of the week, which is from CNBC. And obviously, as we record this, like we're in the middle of the whole, I guess, coronavirus crisis. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things on everyone's mind. And I think for me, you know, as a business owner, of course, yeah, there is the humanitarian side as well, which I'm very concerned about. But also, you know, another part of that is providing for all of our artists, all of our staffs and kind of seeing where we fit in the industry. And I definitely have been feeling a bit shaky, to say the least. So one of the things I've been kind of Googling and seeing if anyone has been writing about this. So there's a link that I have up from CNBC in the States. And this is from March 3rd, and it is titled Global Ad Spending Will Likely Fall If Spread of Coronavirus Continues. So yeah, it was just kind of interesting to try to get, you know, a bit of, I guess, some objective measure on kind of what's going on here. And basically, you know, they're positing here that the global ad spend will likely fall if the spread of the virus continues. But also they kind of talk about areas like such as streaming TV and video games could see higher usage and therefore a higher ad spend if people are spending more times indoors. But also obviously cancellation of big events such as the Olympics will have an impact. And of course, if there's issues with the supply chain, companies are not going to be advertising stuff if there's nothing to actually sell. And one of the bottom line points as well is that advertising is an easy area to potentially cut in a time where there is uncertainty or volatility. So yeah, this was really interesting for me because I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about how we kind of digest the news and these things. And when we initially started Jack or when I initially started Jackie Winter in 2007 was like the middle of the GF scene kind of some ways, but I don't remember ever hearing anything about it. And I kind of started this business in that market in the middle of that situation. Obviously, things are a bit different now. And I, you know, I'm not just one person. So I'm paying extra special attention to it. And yeah, it's definitely having a bit of an impact on us. Like, you know, we with the Olympics, like there was a project that we had or still have kind of on the boil. And obviously, if that gets cut, that will have a big impact. And, you know, definitely seeing or feeling a bit more of kind of a cautious vibe out there. I mean, Laura, in the freelance territory, what have you noticed? Obviously, it's a very dynamic situation. But yeah, have you seen anything happen or with your friends or anything else that you can report? back on? Look, I've been lucky that the work that I do hasn't really been affected. I mean, Jeremy, you're one of my main clients. So unless you stop (laughs) commissioning things from me, then I should be all right. But um, no, I mean, I've been fine. But I think it is tricky to know what kind of level of panic is warranted and whether even, you know, obviously, eventually even unwarranted panic becomes a reason to panic because if everyone, if enough people feel that concerned, then that's when you start to see things like the stock market crashes that are happening and reduced ad spends and all of these things. But it's very hard to know how to react and respond. And part of me feels that the best way 
for me is to continue as I as I was and not kind of change any of my habits or work things. But I think if I obviously if I see my clients reacting in other ways, I'll have to respond accordingly. It's a continually evolving situation, and I don't know that I'm you know qualified to comment on it really. Oh, sure. No, look, I think it's it's something good to talk about. And I think it is kind of important to discuss the real life business implications. I think it is. I've definitely seen a bit of an increase in our puzzle sales, for example. And I think, you know, that's a bit yeah. funny, but also, yeah, people are quarantining themselves and kind of staying inside. So maybe there might be yeah. an uptick. That's, in puzzles something, just- that's something I'm going to touch on in one of my links today, actually. <laughs> Well, yeah, look, it's interesting to see how businesses have responded and kind of what the conversations are. Like, I'm really enjoying watching Simon from Who Gives a Crap talking online, especially about the whole toilet paper situation, getting a bit of an insight to kind of how they work and how they're addressing things. And I think, yeah, there are definitely some opportunities out there. And I think even just the whole idea of focusing more on the motion side of things, and especially in things that are kind of going on screens is definitely going to be something that we probably might be seeing more of. So how do we kind of prepare for that? How do we think about that in that whole thing about trying to, I guess, maintain a calm presence, which is, I think is also something really important that we all need to do with that as well. So yeah, I definitely would recommend checking this out and uh, keeping updated on things as they happen in the industry. Laura, what are you going to get us started with? Well, I was going to start with something else, but now that you've started this kind of theme, I think I'm going to start with this link from The Verge. As I said, like I'm not really here to comment on the current sort of coronavirus situation, and it's something I actually kind of actively wanted to stay away from in this podcast personally, but I have to say, I do find it really, really fascinating to learn about how any large world event, whether that's, you know, a global pandemic, an election, a natural disaster, even just like a big legal case or something, can have effects on things that you might not normally consider thinking about, things that are lateral. And for example, I came across this link on The Verge, which looks at how in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak, Steven Soderbergh's 2011 film Contagion is seeing this massive spike in viewing. And I think it's interesting because Contagion isn't actually streaming anywhere like Netflix or Hulu. And that's led to this really big increase in people renting or buying it from iTunes or of course, just pirating it from torrent sites. And I don't know, I think it's fascinating to think about how a medical issue can translate then into shifts in behavior. For example, as you said, you know, schools and offices are closing, which means people are looking for activities to do at home, like puzzles or watching movies, and then how people's movie choices are affected by the situation and then how that kind of translates into financial upticks for the movie distributors. Or as you said, how advertising might actually increase in areas like gaming or TV or streaming. And so the article itself goes into the deeper sort of specific statistics of the contagion downloads, which are interesting to go and read in full. But one that I'll note here is that each increase in downloads varying from, you know, a couple of hundred to nearly 20,000 can be sort of timed to a major news event in the spread of coronavirus. Prior to January 24th, Contagion was seeing just a couple of hundred downloads a day. And then on January 25th, it jumped to over 1,500. By January 29th, when news began to circulate that the virus had touched down in the US, it jumped to over 18,000 downloads a day, which is kind of crazy. And you can also see the data translate by country. And, you know, how it's initially most popular in South Korea, which is one of the most, you know, severely affected affected areas, but that's since been overtaken by the US. Here in Australia, Contagion is now in the top 10 downloads on iTunes, whereas like before the outbreak, it wasn't even in the top 100. And of course, the download figures only apply to torrents, which is just a really small fraction of the piracy landscape. You know, the streaming piracy as well, which is still very popular, but it's not measurable. So the total numbers are are likely much, much higher. But the other interesting thing was looking at the Google Trends data for the film Contagion over the past 90 days. And of course, interest is skyrocketing. And like the ninth most search query after just the movie title was where to watch Contagion. And then the 19th, 20th and 21st queries were Contagion Netflix, as well as like Contagion full movie, Contagion full movie download free, (laughs) which is exactly what I kind of 
Google <laughs> whenever I want to find something. And it's just interesting. People want to watch this movie and they want to use the streaming services that they subscribe to, but without those options, they're forced to look into rental options and downloading. And I imagine Netflix are kind of kicking themselves now that they don't have the rights to this movie. Yeah. Now it's I haven't seen it, you know? And Neither have I, I. Don't know, but do you have any interest in watching it? I actually downloaded it like, I mean, don't tell, <laughs> excuse me, police, if you're listening. I, I got it legally um, a few years ago and then just never watched it. And I mean, it's just not a movie I'm that interested in. Maybe I'll watch it now because of the hype, but eh. Interesting. Thanks for bringing that one to the table, Laura. This one is sort of, again, tangentially related to everything at the moment, but just, you know, slightly. I think one thing that I've been kind of thinking about over the weekend and what we are trying to do at the moment is really just kind of kick back up our marketing efforts just in general. Just when we market, usually kind of work comes from that. And so I always find that our work kind of goes in a very circuitous manner in terms of that. Yeah, so like we're just kind of refocusing our strategies there in a way. And this article was posted on a professional development Slack, which is posted in January. And it's kind of a riff on a few things that I've seen before. Now, mostly I will bring to the table links that I would recommend and kind of, you know, I'm, I'm giving as good advice. This is kind of the opposite, though. I'm talking about this one because I think it's exactly advice not to follow. And Laura, I'm curious to kind of hear your take on mm. this. But the title of it is Why You Should Stop Asking Busy Professionals, Can I Pick Your Brain? And I think this is on a single person's kind of blog named Cole Schaefer at honeycopy.com. And basically, you know, he makes a case for, again, valuing people's time, which is kind of something we talk here a lot about. And when you're asking someone to pick their brain, you're essentially kind of asking them to, I guess, to take kind of some financial hit or kind of make this financial gesture in this way when you, when you put that slant on it in terms of trying to value their time in that way. He proposes like kind of some alternatives to asking people. And at the end, he closes with kind of an email that he would send Jason Fried, the one of the co-founders of Basecamp. And so Jason is someone who really kind of likes watches. And I'll just read out this email and then just explain. I don't know. Just There's not much to explain. But here's the email. He says, and this is kind of his, I guess, alternative saying, can I pick your brain? And the email says, good morning, Jason. I've been following your work for the past three years as I built my copywriting agency. Your book rework has been a huge reason I've chose to remain a small one-person shop rather than building something monstrous. I know you adore watches, celebrate simplicity, and admire good writing. So to say thank you for all I've learned from you, I'm sending two books your way. The Watchbook, a massive, beautifully designed book that depicts the world's most wonderful timepieces. And a short, simple book Elmore Leonard wrote years ago called Ten Rules of Writing. He was the greatest crime novelist to ever pick up a pen and share a few gems I imagine you'll appreciate. I'll follow up here in a couple of weeks and see how you're enjoying the reads. But in the meantime, I have just one question. Would you be open to me rewriting this landing page for you? It'd be pretty badass to write for a company that has so deeply inspired my career, life, and approach to work. Cheers, Cole. And okay, Laura, did you get the same gut horrible reaction to reading that as I did when I first read it? Completely. Yes. I can't tell if it's like, I mean, I can't tell if it's serious or not. Like, I mean, with everything I read at the moment, like I just cannot tell if it's kind of satire or not. No, this is serious. I'm pretty sure this guy's is serious. And I, you understand reading this whole long article, because that comes right at the end, you understand kind of the points he's making and I don't 100% agree with them, but throughout it, there are things that I definitely agree with, right? Like it is annoying when you get really vague emails that are just like, hey, can I pick your brain? And there's no specifics about what they want to know so you can figure out if you're actually going to be able to be helpful. But then he just takes it to another <laughs> level that is so intense. If someone just started, and also then you're like obligating someone. That felt super like blackmail almost, you know what I mean? Like I've sent you these weird fucking books, so now you have to help me. It was just, <laughs> I'm not, not a fan. 
Yeah, the whole thing made me really uncomfortable. I mean, I think yeah, you're really imposing on someone's time and space by giving them these things. But then also like the weird kind of sales <laughs> thing, which is like kind of, you know, following up and like seeing how you're enjoying the reads is if uh, you have yeah. some relationship. And then offering to rewrite a landing page is also kind of a bit passive aggressive because it's saying that it's not good or there's problems exactly. with it at the moment when it's completely unsolicited. Basically, don't do this. But also on, on the guys, flip side of this as well, I guess I have an approach where I love being asked to have my brains picked. And usually I will mostly sit down with most people who ask this. And you could say mm. this kind of, it could be a good or a bad thing. But I think it's different for the industry kind of that you're in, especially the people that usually want to pick my brains are people who are actually going to end up being my clients. So I never look at it as you know money that I should be getting paid for. I kind of see it as an investment in my business, but also just as a general nice thing for helping someone out. Of course, I think when you get to a certain echelon of the industry, this might get a bit overwhelming and you can't do this all mm. the time. And obviously everyone's tolerance and time is kind of different. But the fact that it's like not a black and white situation, I think, yeah, we should allow a bit more room for this kind of discussion. But anyway, if you think about doing this approach, I would just say don't. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you made there about for you and your position that often, yeah, these are people that may end up becoming paying clients. So it's an investment in yourself and your company to do that. For me, it's often not. Occasionally, it is like clients wanting some kind of general advice on strategy or copy. And that's obviously, you know, something I'm going to be doing. More often than not, it's artists wanting sort of agent style advice or other copywriters wanting kind of general industry advice or students. And I as well also, I do take up a lot of these, but I definitely, I guess the one point I'll make is I had someone reach out to me like two days ago with something like this, not like the creepy one (laughs) with a, you know, can I pick your brain type thing via LinkedIn. And she was very, very like friendly, polite. She did a couple of things that this person here recommends, which I do agree with, which is just kind of showing them that you've put some time into finding out about that person and why you're particularly interested. So it doesn't look like you're just sending this note to like hundred different people. You're saying like, I loved the work you did on X project. That really relates to the work I want to do. Could we talk? I think that's really important. But the other thing that for me was really crucial and what I, if they don't offer it themselves, I always ask before I kind of agree to meeting is saying like, can you give me a bit of a, an idea of what you're wanting to learn or, or talk about so that I can understand if I'm going to be able to kind of help you because I do sort of hate when you end up going on these long like coffee meetings or super long phone calls and you realize like, oh, actually this person wants to get into, I don't know, UX design or something. And they didn't really have a clear understanding of what I do. And I can't really help with that, you know? Absolutely. So absolutely. when they come back and say like, well, I'm looking to learn about XXX and I can go, cool, I can help you. Or I can go, hey, I'm not maybe the best to talk about this, but I know someone who you could get in touch with. Absolutely. Good point all around, Lara. What do you got next for us? All right. Next up, I have a wonderful resource. This is from the Creative Independent, which is this really fantastic website of both emotional and practical guidance for creative workers. It's actually published by Kickstarter, yes. which is kind of super random, but it's I really love this site. I think it's awesome. And this is titled A Creative Person's Guide to Negotiating tools and knowledge to help you ask for what you need and deserve. And it was written and compiled by Ashley Hafnawi, who's a writer based in New York City that I also share a Slack group with. And in this guide, basically, Ashley has consolidated some key learnings from her own research and experience, as well as with additional writing from a range of other experts. And she notes that whether you're negotiating in a professional context or within personal relationships, although they can take place under vastly different circumstances, of course, there actually is quite a bit of overlap. So 
this guide is divided into sections and it's organized in theoretical order of what a person should consider before entering a negotiation. And so just to give you an overview, like these are the sections that they cover, understanding the differences between professional and personal negotiations, how do personal values play into negotiations, assessing your wants versus your needs, negotiating when you're desperate, knowing what you're worth and not just from a salary perspective, and how to prepare for a negotiation. And look, it's one of many fantastic resources from the Creative Independent, including there was a brilliant guide from a friend of the show, Carly Ayres, about setting up a design agency and transparency in creative companies. And of course, although this guide isn't the be-all and end-all of negotiation, it does cover some really important points. And I appreciated that they covered some really unique things that other articles or books on this topic leave out, such as that idea of negotiating when you're the one in the desperate position and how personal values kind of affect your ability to negotiate as well as of the people you're negotiating with. And I think it's also just worth noting that I really love the UX design of these guides. I just really highly recommend this one for anyone. Well, for, I was going to say anyone who's involved in creative negotiations, but I think that's that's anyone who works in the industry and you are more than you realize. You don't have to be necessarily a producer or an art buyer who's actually actively making like money negotiations with clients, whatever, to find this kind of thing useful. And I think it's really helpful for more people to think about the discussions and conversations they have with their professional colleagues as well as, you know, in their personal lives to think of them more as negotiations, not in a, like a manipulative way, but to just really understand what it is that goes into these and how to reach a healthy outcome. Jeremy, what do you think of this one? Yeah, I really liked it. And I mean, it's, it's nothing that I didn't kind of know or nothing that we don't kind of do. But that's almost like um, a nice thing when I kind of read that because it lets me know it's like, okay, I'm not just kind of crazy. I'm not kind of doing things in my own way. Like these are things that other people have thought about and other people kind of appreciate. Yeah. So, and this guide yeah, is I, not for someone like you, like who's been doing this forever in their own kind of capacity. It's really for- Of course. Yeah. But at the same time, this is definitely something that's going to go in my kind of toolbox, like when I need to kind mm. of help explain our value as well. Because I think just like how clients, if you want to put this on a very base level, clients appreciate illustrators because they don't have the skills to do those things themselves. Otherwise, they would. Mm -hmm. That's why they kind of go to them. And I feel that negotiation is such a big part of our job. And sometimes really explaining the black art of that and where we kind of bring value, whether it's to our artists or clients, is really subtle. It's really hard to kind of get across. So I like the fact that this is kind of out there. So someone can kind of read and be like, oh, now I understand what you do. And yeah, I don't really kind of want to do that myself. And like, I think it's great. There are some artists mm. who can really do this for themselves and really do it very kind of effectively. But some people also don't want to do it. So, you know, and that's a service that we provide. And that's the nature of business in other ways. Not just don't want to, but I find, and obviously it doesn't go for everyone, but number one, by far and large, the number one thing that artists are most like scared of and uncomfortable with is negotiating fees for work. And not just artists, any sort of freelancer. Number one, that's the thing I'm asked about the most. It's the thing that definitely is met with the most sort of nervousness and uncertainty. So anything you can use to kind of help you gain some confidence in that is really, really great. Yeah, no, fantastic piece. Really good. My next one is a, it's, this is a blog entry from an app called Perkbox. And it's kind of annoying that sometimes these like really interesting articles like just kind of get, you know, they're hard to find because like they're in kind of other weird companies' blogs. Um, mm -hmm. But it was actually aggregated through Fast Company, which is how I kind of found it in the end. But this is called the most annoying phrases you can use in an email ranked. <laughs> oh, love this. So yeah, this is kind of interesting way. I mean, I understand why it's kind of in this company's blog is because they actually kind of use the actual platform to do this kind of survey. And they had these key findings, um, according to the working public, that the perfect email starts with hi and ends in kind regards. And <laughs> 
just looping in and as per my last email is rated the most annoying cliches. And I think yeah, <laughs> as, as per my last email, I mean, oh God, I saw someone made a hat with that phrase on it and it was just like oh, so yes, perfect. Because so I just think as per, like I have kind of oh, yeah. cut that out of my vocabulary so much. I mean, much. it's something in, in, you only use actually kind of intending to piss them off like you are deliberately trying to be passive aggressive there which is not a good thing to be doing with your you know clients or colleagues Uh, no no the funny thing the worst work email sign offs were love warmly cheers and best and i have been using best forever and so i I didn't realize and best are the only two things i use or thanks sometimes but that's it (laughs) worst ways to start an email hey happy friday to whom it may concern Capital letters, kisses, emoji, the biggest email, don'ts. A huge 16% think that it's never acceptable to use an exclamation mark in work email and 48% say that you can use just one. So I thought this was interesting. I mean, it's I haven't seen a report like this and I love the fact that, you know, someone took the time to kind of put it together. It has to think, maybe kind of think about my own things. But I think, yeah, one of the other points that this kind of really makes is that no matter what, I think, you know, we can't get away from the niceties, like putting the niceties into email, like, and really kind of taking a more human approach to it, considering who you're kind of writing to, considering how you're writing, all those things. These are things we always champion, always kind of talk about. But yeah, it it was interesting to see just some of the things that I thought were kind of completely okay as actually maybe not okay. So I'm going to be re considering some of these. Laura, did any of these hit home for you in any ways? Yeah, best and cheers are the only ways I end emails. And I mean, whatever. But look, I'm going to say what I always say, and I will keep saying it till the day I die, is that I think these things are super interesting to look at. And it's good to get like a general feel for, you know, what the consensus is. But great communication in any sense, whether that's face-to-face, email, over the phone, body language, whatever it is, is not about learning hard and fast rules and sticking to those only. Like if as as a copywriter, you did that, all your copy would be the same. It'd be crap. The whole point of great communication is like, yes, you get a feel for these things, but then what you need to do is get a feel for the person you're talking to. What do they respond to? How do they, like maybe for starting off knowing some of these things are useful, but just the idea of being like, well, I'm never going to use an exclamation mark or an emoji because this list told me to is nuts. For some people, that's the right approach. There are so many instances where I can think of that like definitely, definitely benefited from being much more kind of warm and jokey and friendly. And then there's definitely situations where it wouldn't be. And it just hard and fast rules with anything to do with language drive me crazy. Yes, I agree. But it's also interesting to think about we're such creatures of habit and something that you do a lot, like you just kind of fall into a habit. And that I think one of those things, like when it comes to communication is like when you're hearing something out of a habit, like, yeah, it says that, okay, this person doesn't really care enough about me to kind of consider how I need to hear this information, which I don't like, again, I don't know if it's kind of true or not. I think it's habitual, but like, look, I was just reading over, I mean, the most annoying email cliches. I want to read these out because I have used, I think all of these in the last week, just looping in. Actually, I I don't loop in. So like, I think there's not that as per my last email, any updates on this? Oh, I've used that like at least three times. Just checking in. Oh, I've used that as well. Confirming receipt, haven't used. Per our conversation, haven't used. Please advise, I've used. Oh, thanks in advance is a big one. Hmm. And hope you're well. I start every email with hope you're well. So yeah, this is hard for me because I've always prided myself on writing lots of emails and email being the currency of kind of my work. But yeah, I use lots of these phrases and I never considered that they might be annoying. So Look, not to stay on this link for like ever, but (laughs) I know you and you write a brilliant email. And for example, you're chiding yourself now because you use hope you're well, but you're good at doing the, because I think, yeah, just 
hope you're well, full stop. I hate that. It's crap. Like delete it. There's, it doesn't mean anything. But it's very different, I think, to say like, hey, hope you've been super well since we last chatted. That to me feels friendly. And even though it's not necessarily saying anything more personal, it feels more personal. You're relating to the last time you spoke. And I know that you are good at doing, I don't know, hope you're well and you enjoyed your time in Japan. You know, like something that actually shows that you've paid attention to that person. That's very different. And I think what lists like this don't do is actually get into the nuances of how these things can be used to good effect and obviously negative effect. All fair. Thank you. I'm I'm flattered by your sincerity there, Laura. (laughs) Hope you're well. What do you got next? Okay. Next for me is, this is a simple one, but I never knew you could do this. I mean, I'd never needed or wanted to, but this is something I Googled recently because I went to New Zealand this weekend. I forgot to say that earlier. And Dan and I wanted to watch a movie together because we're on a Jetstar flight and they don't have any built-in entertainment. And then what I wanted to know was like, okay, can I connect two pairs of headphones to my computer without using like a physical splitter? And so I Googled it. Turns out it's so simple. It's just a thing. You bring up that in your, um, I mean, I use a Mac and you bring up that MIDI utilities thing, which I always see in the applications or settings, whatever, but I'm like, what is that? Who uses that? And like a few simple clicks and you can connect two pairs of Bluetooth headphones or one pair of connected headphones, one pair of Bluetooth, or you could use even like the out loud speakers on your computer and someone's headphones, whatever. It was super simple. It turns out in the end, we weren't even seated next to each other. So I couldn't actually (laughs) use this, but it's a cool little trick that I didn't know was possible. And I mean, look, I'm providing a link that gives you the instructions, but obviously, you know, just Google it. It's all over the internet. Fair enough. I really, I didn't know about that. And I kind of struggled with that for a bit because like I wanted to kind of use my AirPods with my partner in our room watching telly on the laptop without waking the kids. And like, I couldn't find any solution to kind of do that. And I had to- This is all you do. This is all you do. Okay. I'm going to check it out. Thank you so much, Laura, for that one. No Speaking of tools, my next one is a bit of a continuation of a bit of a theme that we've been having for the last few weeks on coding and kind of developing. First, I was kind of talking about Grasshopper, you know, learning how to code. And then, Laura, what did you bring last week? You brought the piece about kind of, yeah, how individuals are kind of making their own products like kind oh, of yes. for their families. Homemade apps. Yes. And so this is a tweet that was um, put out in January. I can't remember. I don't know who kind of sent this to me, but it was from Andrew Wilkinson. He is the co-founder of Tyner, owner of Dribble and MetaLab and yet yeah, been around for a while. And he made a tweet that said, earlier this year, I had a productivity breakthrough. I used to spend 25 to 100K building an app over three to six months. It was frustrating, expensive and slow. Then I started using no code tools like Webflow, Bubble, Zapier, and Airtable. Suddenly, I was able to build my idea in days instead of months at a fraction of the cost, literally one-fifth. Craziest of all, I could tweak and maintain it myself instead of hiring expensive devs. I don't know how to code, and kind of talk a bit more there. And so, yeah, just, this has obviously been coming up because, yeah, we're working on, we're always working on kind of lots of different new things that are across the board and kind of how to make our job better. And I came across this one called MakerPad, which is, I think, a really interesting one. I guess you could say platforms like Squarespace as well are effectively no-code platforms. You're building kind of websites visually without using any code. Of course, you can kind of augment it. But things like MakerPad, I think, take that to a bit of a deeper level where, I mean, I guess the only, the, the one way that I can kind of describe it is using things like IFFT or Zapier, anything that you're just connecting to web apps through their kind of APIs or like the language that allows different apps to kind of talk to each other and saying that, you know, when one app kind of does one thing, you know, do something in this other app. And we're seeing this happening in Slack, for example, where you can build some kind of very simple automation or kind of Slack bots without needing to code. And this kind of takes it to a whole new level. And it's put me really deep into this whole no code world and all the different apps and other things that are kind of out there. 
And yeah, I found this kind of really fascinating. I mean, there's not too much that I can report back on because it is pretty deep. And like, even though you don't need to know how to code, there are a bunch of other caveats. I mean, you're going to be paying monthly fees for lots of other potential apps. You're going to have to learn how to use those. It is like still a very significant use of money and time that the developer will be taking off your hands. Yeah, if any of the things that we've spoken about previously, if that kind of tickled your curiosity, I would definitely check out the no-code movement, and especially MakerPad, because they seem to be the leader in the space. Um, Laura, did you have a chance to check any of this out at all? Yeah, I have mixed feelings about this. And I think it's really, it's funny when you take a step back and realize like a very similar conversation plays out and so many things and how your perspective switches depending on your kind of personal investment. I wasn't surprised to see a few kind of frustrated developers replying to the tweet because he mentions about like he was able to do this without hiring expensive devs. And, you know, a lot of devs were coming back saying, well, yeah, these auto tools, they're useful to a point, but nothing can really match up to something that is custom built for someone by someone that's really skilled, you know? And I very much understand that reaction. And I think it's funny because it's like, you could sort of relate this to a conversation we might have when it comes to illustration, people saying like, oh, look at these cool big vector libraries we can just buy for like $5, whatever. Why would I pay expensive illustrators to do this, you know, when I can just whatever. And I think it comes back to, of course, that there's different services and different things for different levels of purpose and budget and whatever. And, you you know, figuring out what applies to you or to your client is up to you. And there's different ways to do that. But it is interesting to kind of consider the other perspectives on this. But like, personally, I'm super interested in this stuff, just like you, Jeremy. And I love the idea that someone like me who is unable to code can be empowered at least to some level to create some really useful things. And for example, like I've done some really great integrations with like Airtables API just for like little personal projects that have been really useful and I would not have been able to do in the past, you know, without much more in-depth knowledge. But it's still, yeah, I, you wonder like how a thread like this kind of potentially degrades the work that developers do. I don't know. It's just a thought. What I find interesting though as well is when developers themselves start using these tools and building them into their work to actually enable their kind of clients to be empowered to carry on doing stuff after the initial development is finished. And I know that we've had that with some Jackie Winter projects where they use certain tools in our development projects that then enable you as the user, the main user to kind of continue updating things or tweaking things in the future rather than having to necessarily go back to them to like recode something, which I think is a really interesting kind of combo of things. Of course, yeah, the parallels to illustration are definitely there. Like there, the whole proliferation in kind of these stock libraries is is huge. There was a really big one released the other week, actually, where I forget what it was. But yeah, similar concept. I think there's a time and place for all of it. But yeah, I definitely think it's worth kind of reading all the things. But it's not the kind of end all to developers and even with us kind of working with developers. But yeah, interesting to check out nonetheless. Laura, what's up next for you? Okay, so last week, Jeremy, you were talking about Hey, which is the new email solution that's been developed by Basecamp. And this week, I came across a post on their Signal vs. Noise blog from Jason Freed, who's their co-founder. I never know. Is it Jason Fried? Jason Freed? Who knows? Anyway, they were talking about how they were actually able to acquire the web domain Hey.com, which, like, you know, imagine would have been really hard to get. Just a quick spoiler alert, they don't actually reveal in this post how much they paid for it because both parties signed non-disclosure agreements, which was mega disappointing for me. It has to be. It has I to reckon. be millions. I would bloody love to know the numbers involved, but regardless, still an interesting read. Turns out Jason was kind of pretty damn lucky. Firstly, that he was able to even find like a live contact email. And then he emailed the person who owned Hey.com. And it turns out that the two of them had actually spoken on a podcast some years earlier. So they kind of had this personal connection. And there were like a lot of offers and counter offers. And initially they weren't able to get him to sell. This was back in 2018. 
then basically it kind of died down. And then in August 2019, the guy got back in touch and he said, just speaking of negotiation in general, what I think is pretty brilliant, but also sounds like something a real estate agent would say. He emailed and he said, hey, not sure if you're still interested in hey.com, but I'm in the process of vetting what appears to be a serious inquiry to buy it. The numbers being discussed are notably higher than what you mentioned previously. Given your previous offer, I'm thinking you probably won't be interested, but I appreciated your approach and also what you've done for the industry. So I thought I'd let you know as a courtesy, which I mean, amazing. But long story short, Basecamp made a bunch more offers, increasing it each time. Eventually the dude agreed to sell it. And the post is just interesting because it makes note of some of the more nuanced aspects of the negotiation, like the original owner's emotional and business attachments to the URL and how that played into the discussion. So it's kind of interesting to read as a follow-up to that negotiation guide I talked about earlier. And notice that Jason did not email and buy the guy some books on hay or farming (laughs) or domain names. Um, A great example of just how to be a normal person (laughs) and send emails, but also a great example of kind of patience, you know, just like that's the thing I really love about Basecamp and their whole kind of calm methodology. Like if it was me, I would have imploded and tried to organize something within a day or I don't know. But yeah, amazing that they were able to kind of wait it out that long. What I kept thinking was like, okay, even though they didn't buy it, they clearly had been working on this product, right? This whole time that they were calling, hey. So I was like, what was their other option? What were they going to, what URL were they going to go for? I mean, they would have just gotten something like heyemail.com or I don't know, whatever. Exactly. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. It'll be interesting to see. It'll also be interesting to see, yeah, again, looking at that previous link of um, the email faux pas, like whether or not any of that will be addressed with their app. So I think some they did talk about some of those things. So yeah, they talked about that. that. My final link for the week is just a big a shout out to old school internet, <laughs> miraclecaster.com. I mean, this is, again, there's always kind of something that I'm like, my back, my hips, I'm about to sing a lyric here. No, my back is just kind of, you know, really, and my hips are a bit messed up. And one thing that I've been trying to do is get a bit like higher, it kind of in my seat. Um, And also, Laura, this has been a really hard one for me. Like, yeah, I only realized this after I kind of got this other assessment with a different physio that I cross my legs all the time. And Mm -hmm. it's like, and apparently it's because like it takes pressure off your lower back. And I didn't realize I was doing it until like I started to pay attention. And like now I'm deliberately trying to sit without crossing my legs. And it's Me so too. hard. Because also you always cross them the same way. And so then one hip just gets so out of alignment. I have the same uh, problem. But one of the things I discovered is the reason for this is that most people's chairs are just too low and desks are too high. And I've also noticed that this is kind of very a big thing like with the Aeron chairs as well. The reason they come in kind of three different sizes. And I think that I probably did not size mine correctly. And so through going through the dark corners of the internet, I found this guy who's taken it upon himself to produce new casters, like the wheels that kind of chairs go on. And he's put it online (laughs) on the site called Miracle Caster. And it raises your chair like a whole four inches. These are very large wheels. And like, (laughs) I I, I just love it because this is it's obviously a guy who's like felt passionate about it, has gone and made this, has like this site is not on Squarespace or anything fancy. Like oh, this the is website like old school, is so built good. On that kind logo. of Dreamweaver. Oof. I'm gonna buy five of them. I don't know if I will ever receive this because like I have no idea when <laughs> the site was updated. You know, this guy's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's like oh, it's God. all very, very interesting. I love this site. I love the idea. I just love the spirit of Can I ask capitalism you a question? Here. Yes. Can't you just raise the seat like using the built-in mechanism? I don't understand still, why you need still, bigger wheels. It's still too short. Okay, if you want me to get technical, it is still too short. Also, because we got um. What's, how high all... are you going to be? Are you not going to be able to touch the ground with your feet? 
your hips need to be higher than your knees, and they're not at the moment. And a big reason also is because of the stand, because all of our desks are standing desks and bases, and they're really kind of thick. And I think they do sit a bit high relatively. I don't know, Laura. This is like this is I'm on. But if your hips are higher than your knees, are you going to be like dangling forward? I don't know. I have a lot of questions here, but I will let you be the guinea pig and see how it turns out. All I got to say, Laura, is hips don't lie. This is the truth. <laughs> they're speaking to me right now. So <laughs> take us home. What is your last link of the week, Laura? Okay. My link is, this is something I learned about just a couple of months ago. I think it's so friggin' cool. Other people will find it so friggin' boring, but basically the ASX, which is the Australian Securities Exchange, the eighth largest share market in the world. Every year they run this huge public online game that they call simply the share market game. And I'd never heard of this until recently. And the whole idea of this game is to help people learn about the share market and how it works. So you sign up and when the game starts, you get $50,000 of virtual cash, virtual only, and you can then buy and sell shares in any of the 200 plus nominated companies that are listed on the ASX using live prices and you're charged brokerage on each trade. And the whole idea is that it simulates real share market conditions. So it runs for 15 weeks and I like Luckily, found out about it in time to sign up and start playing when it began earlier this week. So sorry that I didn't bring this link earlier. You, I think you are too late to start. You might be able to start late, actually. Don't quote me on that. But next year, definitely look. In, you need to do so much research before you start anyway. The level of gameplay is fascinating. You can basically go like as deep as you want. And they provide all the same information that you would get as a real investor. So for example, there's these like incredibly complex and detailed share history charts, company information, annual reports, et cetera. And you can also kind of buy and sell with different strategies. So for example, you can use like market to limit orders, falling sells, dividends, et cetera. And they have a ton of amazing guides and how-tos to help you learn how to do fundamental analysis or technical analysis and reviewing these, you know, companies' performance, financial numbers, assessing the merits of a company's corporate strategy and competitors and so on, and as well as like staying on top of the financial news and how this might affect the company you're researching. And they they also kind of give you these really extensive tools to review price movements of the market and identify trends and buy and sell opportunities. It's just super, super in-depth and it's a really cool idea if you're someone who's thinking about getting into investing and wants to learn more or test your strategies without any real financial risk. And look, honestly, I'm not sure how to play without spending just an insane amount of time on this. Like it's a real wormhole. You can get sucked so deep, but it sort of simulates the share market in a really fascinating way. And I think it's such a cool thing that no one seems to know exists. That's so funny because like, I mean, in America, this is kind of part of actually our high school curriculum. We do like, well, I know most high schools do this thing called like the stock market game and like a lot of banks and I've other kinds of- in sitcoms. Yeah, yeah. It's like a big thing. Like it's a big part of American culture, like in that way, like a part of school. So like, yeah, I, I kind of found it a bit amazing that either they A, They do this it in Veronica done... Mars. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah, in, but the, I but, know. But I never knew Australia. a thing. Well, it wasn't part of my schooling, though on the website, there's definitely like a big part of this game that is targeted towards schools. So I wonder if it's something like, because I didn't do finance or anything in my VCE, my final school years or anything. So I wonder if perhaps you do do this during those years. And I'm just like saying this to a whole lot of people who absolutely know about this. But for me, it was totally new. I mentioned it to a ton of people and they were like, what? And I've been learning about investing as much as I possibly can for the last few years now, along with some girlfriends and some other people as well. So we were just like really psyched about this. It's cool. Awesome. Thanks so much for that, Laura. I think that'll do us for this week. Before we go, it is time for 
thumbs up, thumbs down, shaka, the time we dedicate each week to talk about something else to put in our newsletter, because that's a template that we have designed so far. But also, we haven't been in excess of tabs this moment, so I think we're going to try to shoehorn some in over here into the section. <laughs> Laura, what do you got for us? Yeah, I've got exactly that. This is a link I wanted to talk about that we couldn't fit in, so I'm doing it here. Basically, again, I know I said I wasn't going to talk about coronavirus, but it is just so interesting to see all the weird ideas and products and tools that come out of something like this. And the one I'm going to talk about, I'm actually more interested in for other reasons. This is a shucker, I'm going to say, by the way. The URL is don'touchyourface.com. It's basically this machine learning tool that teaches you to avoid touching your face using your webcam. So you like you go to this URL and then you spend a minute training it to recognize what your face looks like when you're touching it and not touching it. And then basically you just leave the page open while you go about your work and then it kind of watches you. And whenever you touch your face, it yells like no loudly at you. (laughs) (laughs) like you're a dog doing something wrong. And the idea is obviously that you like eventually train yourself out of that bad habit. And of course, the creators here made it because of the coronavirus threat, but I'm interested in it it from like a skincare point of view because it's just (laughs) far better for your skin if you're not touching it all the time. And it's a really common cause of like, you know, acne and things. Not that I have acne, but I'm into this. I'm invested in it now. But it's also really bizarre because I kind of, I'll be sitting there and suddenly this no comes out of the screen. (laughs) I don't know if this is good or bad. That's why I'm leaving it as a shucker. Oh, also, FYI, the entire site does run locally, so they can't access or hold any of your information or these pictures of your face. That's what they say anyway. Yes, I'm sure that goes to assuage no one. Actually, I found that, like, you know, I do a lot of meditation and mindfulness work as well. And I found this is kind of where it's coming in the most handy. Like, as soon as like I set my mind to the fact that I need to kind of be aware of that fact that I was touching my face, I stopped and I love touching my face. I love rubbing I my touch eyes. My face it's like all the time. I, yeah, you I rub know. your eyes like a lot. I know. And so not doing it has been really hard. I've been kind of like doing it through like my shirts and like other kind of clean substances because like, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. Are your shirts that clean? You know, yeah, my shirts are fucking clean as man. Um, (laughs) What do you got? I will put this link that I couldn't fit anywhere else as kind of a thumbs up. I think this is Forbes announcing their 50 over 50. And I don't know. This is something that I was always very sensitive about as I kind of got old. Like I never was in a 20 under 20 or 30 under 30 or 40 under 40. And then, you know, lists kind of go out like, you know, you don't really kind of see lists go any further than that. But yeah, what Forbes is kind of doing here is doing a 50 over 50 dedicated to women. So yeah, women on the inspiring side of 50 over 50. So yeah, this is just really great. I don't know. I mean, it could just be- Was it for International Women's Day? Was it in light of, of that this weekend? Well, I mean, they may have kind of launched it in conjunction with that. Like, it's not going to be launched until July. But like, look, whether ah. or not it's kind of like a simple marketing ploy or kind of something else, I don't know. I'm surprised. Like, I hadn't seen it in those kind of ways with like a major magazine. So yeah, I was into it. You're um, check in it my out. 95 under 95, Jeremy. Thank you so much, Laura. Again, you know, another <laughs> another job in my age is never unwelcome <laughs> on the show. That'll do us for now. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. She's Laura Chan Baker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. And if you want more episodes, they can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. To receive beautiful artwork, the links to our open tabs and updates on all things Jackie Winter, check out our newsletter and sign up at JWG.is slash newslettering. Again, JWG.is slash newslettering. You can find us on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and Winter like the season. And you can send us anything at podcast at JackieWinter.com. 
Instagram.com. If you want to hear more about Lara, you can follow her on Instagram at Lara underscore high res tiff or one word Lara Chan Baker on Twitter. Remember, this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using a supportive player, you're able to see relevant visual content as we go on. And if you work for an ad agency or design studio or interested in our live extended version of Open Tabs, be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye bye. Bye-bye.